You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Things that happen to people far away honestly don't matter much to him. Sounds harsh, but it's true. There's a riot of some sort happening where? Wildfires are raging because why? There's an authoritarian dictator in South America who did what? There's only so much he can give a damn about. Worrying about somebody a thousand miles away makes as much sense as worrying about a rock on Mars. He's concerned with whatever is in his orbit. This county. His county. When people talk about the weaponization of Omnimetal, or about some secret lab in the Gobi Desert, or about some alien fungal contagion, or blah, 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 that's no different than when they're talking about plural pronouns, or trigger warnings, or defunding the police. It's a foreign language he doesn't speak and doesn't want to learn. That's one of the reasons he knows it's time to retire. He just doesn't feel like he's in touch with the conversations people are having anymore. Ben Percy is the author of the novels The Dark Net, The Deadlands, Red Moon, and The Wilding. He's also an author of short story collections and the essay collection Thrill Me. He writes Wolverine, X-Force, and Ghost Rider for Marvel Comics. And he's the author of The Comet Cycle, that's three novels, the Ninth Medal, The Unfamiliar Garden, and his latest novel, The Sky Vault. Thank you for joining me, Ben. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. It's always great to talk with you. Well, you know, let's start with the one thing I left out. You wrote the novel, the movie, Summering, which That's is right. a wonderful movie. Uh, tell us why you decided to write it. Did you write it as a movie first, or was it based on a short story I haven't seen? No, no, it's a, it's a movie solely. So I have a daughter, Madeline, uh, who I was really excited to share stories with. I was excited to hand her comics and novels and watch movies uh, that had meant a lot to me as a kid. And so we read The Hobbit, for instance. And she was like, that was great, Dad, but where are all the girls? And then we watched Stand By Me. Uh, and the outsiders and 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 she kept saying like these are great but you know where are all the girls and with that revisionary impulse in mind uh, I set out to write a story for her it's dedicated to her and to Alice Ponsolt who is the director uh, James Ponsolt's daughter if you wait until the end of the credits you'll see for Madeline and Alice and we were trying to write, tell the story of uh, these girls who are coming of age. So there's four of them. Uh, they all have divergent personalities and they're all facing uh, that final weekend of summer before middle school begins, which is a liminal time. You know, it's a time when you're still kind of a kid, but you're eyeballing what it means to be a teenager 
things are going to change swiftly. Uh, and, and so it's sort of like a saying goodbye to that fantasy world, you know, that you occupy as a kid. Uh, there's a lot of things that happen in the movie that aren't necessarily real. Uh, and yet you're following along this adventure, this final weekend of adventure as though, uh, you know, all of this were happening, you know, it's that, it's like that, that kind of make-believe mindset that you have uh, when you're that age. Um, so, so yeah, it's like magical, it's meaningful. Um, and it was, it's not, I would say it's not your standard Ben Percy joint, um, in that it's quite earnest and, and playful and, and leaves you feeling good. If, if, if not a little melancholy, whereas most of my stuff, you know, is usually more of like an adrenaline fueled nightmare. (laughs) As a, both a writer and a father talk about creating a lot in both lives at once because as you are creating the story of Summering, you're also creating a, a life for your daughter in which that movie and story is part of her life. And we all have, you know, we live by our life story. So that's a kind of interesting intertwining of life and story into a new life story. Yeah, and I guess that I've been thinking in those terms their whole lives. Uh, in that for a time there, I was writing the Teen Titans for DC and Green Arrow, the comic series for DC. And our conversation around the dinner table would oftentimes revolve around comics, which they were deeply invested in back then. They're less so these days. Um, but I would you know, be asking, well, what would be a good idea for a villain? You know, and my daughter would chime in and say, uh, you know, what about a... Uh, a bad guy who just won't stop talking and won't stop talking, 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 talking until your ears melt. Uh, or what about a character, you know, a bad guy called the pooper? And you can guess what their superpower might be and, and so on. Or, you know, I talk at a plot point in the story and be like, so what do you think should happen next? Uh, and so on. And, you know, these days they're teenagers and, you know, uh, they're maybe a, a little too cool at times for, old man Percy, but we still spent a lot of time, you know, watching movies together and talking about books together. And, uh, you know, I'm always trying to guide their watch list and be like, Oh, you should check out. You like that. You should check out this. And, and I guess that the fact that I am creating stories, you know, the fact that I'm maybe on a film or TV set, the fact that I'm have a new novel coming out, you know, like, they're part of that. They're very much a part of that. Uh, in that, in the Sky Vault, for instance, um, you know, there's a teenage kid. Well, well portrayed, I thought. I mean, you seem to understand that the essence of being a teenager, I think, is that it's a state we never leave, no matter how old we get. It, it's uh, like the Schrodinger's cat within every male human being. <laughs> you may catch them when they're, you know, 15 again. Yeah, I mean, I remember those days vividly, uh, in part because, right, we always remember the awkward moments best. Uh, and but, but, you know, my own son, he's, he's 17 now. He just today started his senior year of high school, which is insane to me. Uh, you know, I'm just throwing out cliches here, 
Uh, but that whole, it happens so fast, right? It really does. Uh, but, but there's this teenage boy in the sky vault and it's not him. Uh, but you know, there's certain things that certainly I I'm channeling, uh, through him, you know, through my observation of him over the past few years where like all of a sudden here's this kid who maybe the year before was, you know, five feet tall. Uh, and now he's six two right like it's it's almost like a werewolfian like a lycanthropic transformation you know and their voice his voice bottoms out he's got a deep voice like me you know he's shaving and it's like so here's this kid who around 14 15 just like turned into the incredible hulk and but he's still you know the brain hasn't changed that much it's still basically the brain that was in that five foot tall kid uh and so you know, it's just a weird time where they're trying to figure out who they are uh, and they can't even keep track. They can't even keep track of themselves physically. Um, so I was, I was interested in that, uh, channeling that and channeling him onto the page. So that, that getting back to that whole idea of, you know, creation and, and fatherhood. I mean, every writer is always just stealing from everything around them right we're all like magpies that are searching around for the bright objects in the world and weaving them together into a nest so here's this you know adolescent period that i'm able to use for inspiration on the page and i guess you could say that a part of him will always be fossilized there as a result of that you know one of the things that most impressed me with this book was that um by the time i finished it i, I had to wonder i how much of this stuff did you know at the very beginning when you started the ninth metal? Because it seems that I, as I was reading through the books, I thought, these are wonderful. How's this going to work? And it works really well. Did you know the whole plot of this trilogy when you started it? So I never know everything. You know, if I knew everything, that would be boring. Um, but I tend to know whenever I set it off on a project, I tend to know what the ending is. I tend to know, you know, I refer to my outlines as constellations uh, because I know the bright stars. I know the bright stars in the constellation, which means I know the shape of the thing. Uh, but there's all that black vacancy in between those stars. And that's where the improvisation, the theater of it all comes in. And so I can have fun along the way. So I know what I'm aiming towards. And and yes, if you look at the initial pitch of the comet cycle, and the comet cycle, just to make a broader statement, and I've talked about this with you before, but you know, it's infinitely generative. Like there could be six books, there could be 10 books, there could be 20 books, right? So when I talk about this as an ending, it's just the ending of these three books so far. Uh, but I knew where I would end these three books when I pitched it. Um, the whole idea that, you know, the origin of the comet, uh, the comet contains elements that change the world, right? That's the premise of the ninth metal, the premise of unfamiliar garden, the pre premise of sky vault is that the comet streaks through the solar system. It leaves behind this debris field, the planet spins through it and it shakes up the world. You know, it shakes up the laws of physics and geology and biology. It shakes up the geopolitical theater and so on. And 
the tricky thing is the new elements that are introduced don't appear on the periodic table. So where do they come from? Because, you know, if we're talking about the stardust of the Big Bang, you know, it's all the same composition, no matter what corner of the galaxy universe you're in. So where did this come from? And so I had to have an answer to that right away. And an answer that is ultimately revealed in the Sky Vault. And that is that, you know, we're dealing with a situation that you could refer to as an incursion. An incursion that we are responsible for ourselves. You know, one of the things I think you, you do really well in these books is to, and, and this book is no uh, stranger to this, is to use the, the comet and it, the changes it wreaks in our world to kind of re- reflect our world in a funhouse mirror in a way that you can exaggerate things and, and pull back and you know change the focus to a soft blur to quote the control voice of the outer limits. And I, I really like the, the way that you spin this out through society because... In this book, a lot of the uh, conspiracy theories that the character, things that the character, one character thinks is a conspiracy theory, another character has lived it through. And and so talk talk about uh, just designing these books too. As you know, they are great American adventures. Every one of these has a very American feel to it. This is made in the USA, rock solid, (laughs) rock and roll kind of fiction. But I think you would use this to recreate the USA in a really fun and engaging way. Uh, Put your characters that we like, that we recognize into a real danger that is really imaginative yeah well i mean if you look at fantasy if you look at horror if you look at science fiction it so often is reflective of the period in which it's made you know if you have godzilla who is you know uh, channeling post-atomic anxieties you have invasion of the body snatchers and it's about mccarthyism and the red scare you know, an, an, an invisible enemy living among us. Uh, the Russians who might be just down the street and look like, you know, your neighbor, your friend, your coworker. So, you know, you you look at these books and I'm writing about right now. I'm writing about this world, but I'm doing it through that, you know, Emily Dickinson says, tell it slant. So I'm writing about, I guess you could say, a slanted version of this world a speculative version of this world and i'm trying to you know dig my claws into it and make it feel relevant even if i'm not doing the rip from the headlines thing right you'll feel a recognition nonetheless like you talked about conspiracy theory stuff um disinformation and misinformation it's an it's part of our everyday lives now you know what's true what's not And I wanted to address that. I wanted to address that from the perspective of people who are condemning it. I wanted to address it from the perspective of people who are all in on it. Uh, And, and, you know, I was in part encouraged by books like uh, the graphic novel Department of Truth written by James Tinian, uh, which, which channels that as well. And I, I, you know, am, 
am trying to like you I, you had me read that section of the novel earlier right and and that's a character who changes he changes considerably over the course of this he goes from somebody who is essentially washed up feels you know disconnected uh to the world uh he's kind of physically ruined and emotionally ruined and and defined by loss and a kind of bitterness but by the end of the book he's back in the game and one of the reasons that he's back in the game is because he believes he believes these kids you know he gets kind of like a youthful energy from them he aligns himself with them and he also recognizes that the problems of the world which he had dismissed previously are actually relevant to his backyard after all um so yeah i'm using just certain signposts and certain energy markers that that we're experiencing uh in our in our everyday lives and trying to use them as a way to inform speculative fiction and and make it feel relevant you know it's not just relevant it's also really fun um and one of the the things i really like about this is i think this is a fantastic uh use of the lovecraftian ideas but replayed without uh, you know paying lip service to to lovecraft himself and, and so i want you to talk about you know the influence of other authors and just turning that into stuff that's gen- genuinely you because i think that's one of the things that humans are really able to do that ai's that right will never be able to do is to you can read Shakespeare you can read Stephen King you can read H.P. Lovecraft and when you write it is absolutely recognizable 100% I could tell you about Ben Percy book within two sentences and, and that's because you the human being are bringing it back in with you know the flaws and, and the good aspects both the good and bad of your memory combined to create something that's really new and exciting yeah i mean it's i'm a i have a weird brain uh i i grew up on comics i grew up on country music i grew up on horror movies i grew up on james bond thrillers i grew up on conan the barbarian i grew up on you know, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. I grew up on Kate Chopin's The Awakening. I grew up on Agatha Christie and Arthur Conan Doyle and Anne Rice. And, you know, I write across mediums and I write across genres right now. And I don't distinguish between them in a way. You know, if I'm listening to music, I'm thinking about it in the same way that I'm thinking about maybe a magazine feature I just read. And I'm thinking about it in the same way that I might consider a comic or analyze a comic, you know, Wolverine comic, or I might, and I might think about the same, that in the same way that I do a a show like the bear on Hulu. Um, I'm just, I, I understand like these component parts. I understand the skeletal structures. I understand the different, affects and how they're making me feel the way I feel. And then I'm pirating them and channeling them into my own work. Uh, and, and so when you say like, Oh, you know, I, I can recognize a Ben Percy joint. 
within a few sentences. That's that's awesome to hear. And that's one of the things that I love about, you know, reading and, and watching and listening uh, is when there's somebody like, I'm just pulling names out of a hat here, but somebody like a Cormac McCarthy or a uh, Wes Anderson, right? Uh, Greta Gerwig, like you, Johnny Cash, like you just, you, all you need is a few seconds and you're like, I know who that is. But we're all stewed out of other folks, right? Uh, that whole notion of Gogol's overcoat or whatever, like we all have like our own, just like all this stuff that we've marinated in over time. Uh, and And some of that stuff we hate and some of that stuff we absolutely adore and it's all influencing us. Um, so I'm, you know, I don't distinguish between like high, so-called high arts and, and pop art. Like I love it all. Um, in the same way that like, I love a double butter burger, deluxe cheeseburger from Culver's. And I also love, you know, lobster. <laughs> uh, I also love like a uh, yellow curry dish. Like I'm, you know, I'm, 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 you know, I find it all equally delicious. Um, and so, you know, the things that have influenced me, you you reference Lovecraft, certainly. Like, if you're going to write about cosmic horror, uh, you know, there's something to be said that Lovecraft is certainly seminal. Uh, but I can also point to people like John Carpenter. You know, and John Carpenter is like, he's one of my heroes. Uh, I guess you could say I'm like, in many ways, trying to do in my comics, in my novels, even in even in my screenwriting, like I'm, I'm chasing his footprints in the mud. You know, I love how he takes genre and, and, and just elevates it, you know, and, and revises it and finds scrappy ways to like, uh, create workarounds around finance financial constraints and whatever else like he just he's such an innovative uh you know just visionary guy i i absolutely love carpenter and i'd say that the cosmic horror in this is influenced by him as much as anybody else you know one of the things that i also really i loved about this book just from the get-go from the very first paragraph you give us uh, this perspective of of uh, Chuck Jones is it? I'm trying to yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Theo's dad, the guy. Theo's who dad will yeah. soon disappear briefly on that airplane in the sky. And I I really liked what the, that kind of casual way you, you reveal what's happening to him. It's really fun, and there's just an element of. You are an expert at finding the fun in terror and adventure and action. And, and so I'd like you to talk about, I mean, it seems like you must have a blast writing these books. I hope that that's evident to people. Um, I, I sometimes get that comment, like, you are clearly having fun. And that actually, that's one of the best compliments somebody can give me because that means that that fun, that sense of fun is somehow infectious, that it's it's emanating off the page in some way. And hopefully 
making people smile while also thrilling them. Um, I'm having a hell of a lot of fun every day. I'm grateful every day to be doing what I'm doing. And I try to just like channel as much barbaric energy as I can uh, into my writing. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's some crazy wild moments, uh, some of which involve uh, Chuck Bridges, right? This DJ who works for 93.3, the moose, hang loose with the moose, right? He's a DJ, but he also considers himself a weatherman, you know, a meteorologist, just because he's been given the weather report for the past 20 years. Um, and he's a bit of a conspiracy theorist, you know, he's got, he thinks Bigfoot's real. And, but the thing that I always try to do with characters like this, even ones who are super colorful like that, you know, a guy who's wearing Hawaiian t-shirt, Hawaiian shirts year round with a leather jacket. And, you know, is balding, but like has some crop failure on top, but grows out the hair long and back. And like, the thing is, I always treat them seriously. You know, like I always, I don't want to ever, I'm never punching down. I'm never making fun of them. I'm like, I'm right there with them. I'm trying to occupy, again, theater is something I oftentimes talk about. Just like I have a background in theater and I'm, I oftentimes act out parts or read voices aloud uh, when I'm writing. And so like, I'm, I'm in, you know, like I'm in that character's brain, just as much as I'm into, you know, uh, the a government, the government agent's head, just as I'm into, you know, the, the, the construction contractors head, Joanna Strops, like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to like make these people as flesh and blood as possible, even as I'm taking you on like a, just a roller coaster tour of their lives and, you know, um, throwing them into these wild set piece moments where they're being like consumed by, you know, interdimensional rifts and coming out the other side of them. You know, one of the things I thought that you did really well in this, the plotting is really fantastically well done. You weave in a, a diary from the past, from a World War II setting, and yeah. I thought that that was really a, a well done thing. And so talk about just the amount of research that you have to do to make a book like this seem as, because this reads like, almost, even though as it's achieving its most fantastic, unreal effects, it really reads like, you know, boy, he really knows his stuff about this interdimensional riffs. In this book, I was like, okay, I want, the past and the present to intersect. And I want that to happen in a really dramatic way where even though something happened in the past, it still seems really relevant to the right now. The stakes still seem high. And, and so the idea was, okay, what if there was another lab during World War II? Another lab besides just Los Alamos. And this is very much on everybody's mind right now because of Oppenheimer, right? Uh, the Manhattan Project. Um, what if there was not just the Manhattan Project, what if there was also the Alaska Project? And my father is a big physics geek. Uh, and he's also just, I mean, my, my parents are nature geeks, science geeks. And, and if I want to have like in-depth conversations with them, nothing gets them excited more than just like asking questions about quantum theory or, you know, uh, the genomic evolution of seeds or whatever. Like that's how I like can wind them up and get them going. So talk to my dad about these different things and he pointed me towards different books. And I also listened to a bunch of podcasts and I also sat down with some professors who specialize in this sort of thing. And just the idea that, okay, what if instead of just trying to split or crush the atom, 
What if they were also trying to do something else, right? A rotation or spin of the atom can theoretically create a wormhole, right? Can theoretically create a kind of rift. Now, if you do have a wormhole, that makes the possibility of time travel possible, theoretically. It also makes the possibility of, uh, you know, as you've seen from and read in so many different science fiction stories, the possibility of jumping from this juncture to that juncture in an instant possible. So it's like, that would actually be a great weapon. If you're thinking about building a bomb, wouldn't the government at the same time be thinking about how to easily transport such a thing or how to march uh, an entire regiment, you know, from one side of the world to the other? In seconds. So I have this project, the Alaska project, that's experimenting with that. And around the same time that the bomb is dropped, they have their own experiment, which goes horribly awry. Um, so, you know, to, to address this further, you're talking about the fact that some of this stuff seems rather realistic. And I just think that you need to, I mean, obviously it depends on the tone of your story. If you're writing something that's supposed to be more whimsical or fairy tale-ish, that these rules don't apply. Uh, but but let's say you're George Saunders. George Saunders will oftentimes have these really insane things happening in his stories. People coming back from the dead or like a theme park that's, that's uh, supposed to be Civil War land. You know, like he, he has all these crazy things happening. But what he does to like combat that and make it more digestible is he has simple language, simple sentences. And that diction like is makes the rest of it uh, as opposed to if it was like really purple or overblown prose, like the one thing is way up here, top volume. The other thing is way down here at low volume and they kind of balance each other out. In the same way, if I'm having some crazy stuff happening, as I am, I try to supply a foundation of slippery science so that it's just enough for the audience to chew on and say, I believe in all the rest. Yeah, you know, too, you you do have a great cast in, in this novel. And there are so many characters to, to like, you mentioned Joanna, who's a, a woman who has inherited her uncle's business and become a, a contractor and, and I think that she is a very interesting character just in terms of how she has had to fight to get where she is running as fast as she can just to stay in one place yeah 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 she's you know there's, there's another character that involved a bunch of research uh talking to some construction contractors and 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 trying to figure out how the business of all this, the craft of all this works. Uh, but in, in her case, right, she's asked by the government, by the Department of Defense, to build this structure up in the White Mountains. And she doesn't know what she's building. And she's not supposed to know what she's building. But she does realize over time that she's building it over the and next to the ruins of this old laboratory that existed during World War II. Um, so in her case, in all the cases, really, if you consider this cast of characters, what I'm trying to do is tell time travel stories without 
telling time travel stories in that all the characters feel a little wobbly about where they have ended up. Uh, their history and their future doesn't seem to line up right. You know, I have my very, the very first line of this novel is sometimes uh, when Chuck Bridges takes a long, hard look at his life, he feels like a time traveler who ended up in the wrong place. One of those alternate futures where things went haywire. And in that way, this is a book of transition. So Joanna Straub, right, has inherited this company. And she feels like she's about to run it into the ground. This company has a long history. And upon inheriting it from her uncle, like nobody wants to do business with her, in part because of sexism. And she's trying to get a foothold in the industry. And this government contract, like, it's going to save her ass. It's going to save the company. She has to take it on. But as she moves further and further forward, she realizes that this might have been the worst decision she's ever made. And so, right, this is sort of what's happening with all the characters. They're all like, I don't belong in this moment. And how do I, how do I find a way forward? How do I find a future that feels right for me? You know, you, um, you do a good job in this novel of bringing back the stories in the other novels, but they're not like essential to this story. So, I mean, one of the things that this is a really interesting, you could read this trilogy in any order. Yes. In a sense. Yeah, that was one of the ideas. Yeah. But also, just in terms of book marketing, this trilogy came out in a relatively brief time. And, and I thought that that was really smart way of, you know, Letting the readers know the whole story is going to come and it's going to come pretty quickly. And that's an important part just of the reading experience because, you know, there, how many times have we started trilogies and then waited decades to, to finish? Trilogies or series, yeah. yeah. I mean, we could easily throw some jabs at George R. R. Martin here, but we won't. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I I wanted them all to come out in quick succession. And I also wanted them all to be standalone reads. You can read these books in any order. You can read book three right now and then go back and read book one. Uh, and in that way, I'm drawing off of my experience in comics. I'm creating a shared universe, right? And so the Marvel universe or the DC universe, this is the Percyverse. Um, and, and, you know, if you read Batman, you know that Batman will have an influence on Superman, will have an influence on Wonder Woman or Green Lantern or Green Arrow or and so on. Those stories are all part of like a single narrative fabric. Uh, they run nudge up against each other, even though they're telling their siloed stories. They're telling a larger story. And so that's what I wanted to do here is treat these like a Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman in a way. Like to treat these like, uh, you know, individual titles in the Percyverse that uh, are a family or a bestiary rubbing shoulders against one another. You know, you do do a good job of setting up further stories in, in the, the Percyverse um, with, with this novel. And I think one of the characters who goes uh, to that is uh, Sophie, who's a member of what you call the, the Collectors. And this is a really interesting kind of idea 
something that's generated with an idea that could only happen inside your universe, but it makes absolutely perfect sense. It's like how our world would react to such an incursion as the Comet Kane. Yeah, I mean, this is the topic of my, if there's a fourth novel, that's it. It's going to be called The Collectors. Uh, So Sophie is part of a mercenary group. You know, she's one of many from around the globe who are former military, uh, former, you know, security personnel, some of them former criminals. You know, they they have they have skill sets, you know, essential skill sets that make them a team, uh, a team that is specializing in, you know, the debris of the comet. So. They might be in the swamps of the Amazon. They might be, you know, the deep jungle of the Amazon. They might be in uh, uh, trenches deep in the ocean. They might be in the forest of Alaska, but they are collecting the things, the volatile things, the dangerous things, the invaluable things that they can then sell on the black market. They can sell to military powers. They can sell to governments or businesses so they're seemingly amoral right uh but that's one of the things that sophie has to wrestle with is whether she actually is just working for a profit or if she has to change her perspective on what she's doing and maybe think about the betterment of the world and who you know whether this is fault these things that she's collecting are falling into the wrong hands you know, one of the greatest characters of this novel is in all three novels and is uh, just wonderful. And we you keep us guessing all the way through. And that's the uh, intelligence or whatever it is that's incursioning into our world. And I think you do such a great job of characterizing that, that whatever it is. And it keeps it intriguing. And what the most important thing you do is keep it at arm's length so that the reader is constantly, and you do a good job of setting up so that the reader is willing to fill in the shadows with all the tentacles and the mandibles and the mouse and whatever else you're you're frightened of. And all the conspiracies, all the guns, all the fierce, you know, um, rivalry in terms of government intrigue and crime all of that um is the result of one intelligence so talk about creating an a character that we can't see who isn't named yet is the predominant character in all the books in a sense the driver of all the action yeah i mean you can look at John Carpenter again and malevolent forces that are trying to make their way into our world, whether that's through something like the thing or Prince of Darkness or. Wow. Prince uh, of Darkness. What a movie that (laughs) that, that Uh, dream sequence in that. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, You can look to stranger things. You can look to, uh, you know, so many different, you know, you can look at to George R. R. Martin again. Like you have these these forces. You can look at the xenomorphs. 
um, you know, the alien franchise. There's 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 these forces from outside that are trying to get in. Uh, and and sometimes they have a face. If you look at Stranger Things, the face of Vecna, you know, and, and sometimes they're more uh, faceless, more boundaryless, more like an almost elemental, uh, you know, specter, uh, you know, or godlike specter. Um, and and so you know, I wanted these this this world to like find an embodiment, you know, a physical embodiment. Uh, but if you think about like the the xenomorphs in in Alien, right? They they represent a hive. This hive wants to spread, you know, and it's it's as simple as that. Uh, but you have like this larger notion of like almost a viral contagion. You have this, this that larger amorphous, you know, desire. It's like captured in these queens and it's captured in these drones, these soldiers, right? In, in the same way, like I'm giving uh, this malevolent force, this interdimensional incursion, I'm giving it um, different, different flavors, different versions of flavors in the different books. I'm giving it, you know, uh, uh, life through these cults that have come to worship it. I'm giving... It life through art. Uh, in some cases, people are channeling, you know, the cosmic into their paintings or their sculptures. I'm giving it life through uh, specters that people see in clouds, uh, faces, and you know, monstrous visions that people are seeing in clouds. Uh, I'm giving I'm giving it life in in you know these uh, in in the unfamiliar garden, right? In in the way that it takes over different people's brains and makes them into sort of drones uh, for the larger entity. So I'm finding different ways to explore uh, like this larger notion of, of infection, incursion, want, desire, hunger, malevolence. Like I'm trying to find different ways to explore that. Um, and, and hopefully you find them as colorful as you do terrifying. Now, one thing I think is very interesting about you as a writer is your work in comics and your work in novels. I think they're you know pretty closely intertwined, not in terms of the subject because you're writing for very specific Marvel characters, but just in terms of your um, vision as a writer of, of what works and that you seem to be well-versed in plucking the big threads of prose and implanting them into the, the comic book world successfully and also the bright colors and, and the big swashes of a plot that fuel the comic book world and bringing them into your, your novels. Talk about, you know, the, the crossover. Was that something, if this is, you know, you're at a stage in your career where, the, in your career now, where you're, you're doing both simultaneously, but you weren't always. Was this something you foresaw? I mean, it's something I hope for. Uh, I think that every medium I work in makes me a better writer. Uh, I'm constantly having to reinvent or reassess techniques, my literary arsenal. Uh, 
to give you an example of that, like in writing an audio drama, which I did for Marvel, uh, Wolverine, The Long Night is one of them. It's available wherever you want to listen to podcasts. You know, it's available for free. Wolverine, The Lost Trail is another one. Uh, Wastelanders, Old Man Star-Lord is another. I've written three seasons of audio dramas. Okay, so how do you write an action sequence in audio? How do you write a fight scene in audio? How do I take a print, a visual medium, comics, and translate it into audio? Like it, it's it seemed like a no-brainer at first when they're like, you want to try this out? I was like, hell yeah, I want to write this Wolverine podcast. And then I actually started to write, I was like, how do I do this? How do I not completely bewilder and confuse my audience? And I had to figure out new moves. Like, okay, uh, I'm going to have these special agents who are sort of a point of view characters. Because if I make this interrogative, then I always have a reason for there to be exposition and it not seem awkward or clumsy, right? Like the bad radio play version is, here I am walking down the street and up ahead is old man Withers house where some say 50 years ago, he killed his whole family with an ax and the windows are broken and there's many cobwebs on the porch and hello, do I hear a sound within it right now? And you know, Instead, if you have these agents, these special agents asking people questions, they're like, okay, where were you yesterday? At what time? And what was happening there? It was foggy. And then, you know, the person starts to tell their story and it seems naturalistic. Uh, and, and so how do you write a fight scene? Well, the fight scene probably had to happen in the past. So that the person can tell you what the fight scene was. And then we can have like the sounds of the fight scene inform the telling. Right. And so on. So learning all these moves by listening to other podcasts, oftentimes nonfiction podcasts and seeing how they did it. Uh, in the same way with comics, it's like, okay, in comics, you've got five to seven scenes in 20 pages. And you've got an A plot, a B plot, a C plot, and a D plot. The B plot of one issue becomes the A plot of the next issue. C plot becomes the B plot. Uh, you've got, you know, a villain who is typically like an embodiment an externalization of the internal struggle of the main character. Like if it's Batman, right? A Batman story about Two-Face is going to be a story about whether Batman is the mask and Bruce Wayne is the man or whether Bruce Wayne is the mask and Batman is the man. That's going to be a Two-Face story. So like that, you know, it's an externalization of the internal struggle. Doctor, If it's a Dr. Freeze story, Mr. Freeze, Dr. Freeze, I can never remember. You know, it's going to be a story about Bruce's inner coldness. Uh, you know, emotional coldness, and so on. So, you know, uh, there's going to be a splash page in the first five pages. In other words, there's going to be a single image that takes up a whole page in the first five pages, probably the first three pages, in which case, how do I telegraph that into my prose? How do I create, okay, this is going to be a big moment. It's going to be a cold open. It's going to take up this much real estate of prose in the same way that that would take up this much real estate in a comic of visualization. And, and I'm going to, you know, in comics, you always know, for instance, that, all right, these characters are fighting, but they're not just fighting. They're also talking. Like if Rob, Batman and Robin are kicking the Joker's ass on a rooftop, they're not just going wham, pow, bop. They're also being like, Hey, Bruce, what about this? You know, and, and that's because you only have this much space. With a novel, you have seemingly unlimited real estate. But if you write comics for a while, you realize that you actually don't. So you make things more efficient. 
And you realize that, okay, yes, you should be characterizing, you should be contributing to theme, you should be uh, pushing the plot forward all at the same time. And you have to do that in comics. And when you realize that you have to do that in comics, you realize that you really should be doing that in novels, right? So I just blasting out, you know, like a howitzer, all these different things that I'm learning from different mediums, all of which are hopefully making me a better novelist. But being a better novelist is hopefully making me a better comics writer, which is hopefully making me a better screenwriter and so on. You know, what you are saying, what's interesting to me is that and all the time that you've been writing comics and writing your novels, it has never occurred to me that your novels have essentially, they never seem comic booky in a negative way. I mean, they, they just seem fun and exciting and, you know, very adult-oriented without that meaning that it has graphic sex it's just that it's you know the concerns are concerns of the adult characters mostly adult characters and i think that's very interesting that you managed to use one medium to inform another without um changing it or changing the feel of the other and so maybe talk about you know the the limits of you know the way comics are informed by novels and such because on the other hand too uh, your comic books are not just like you know larded with lots of words i mean they're they are actual marvel comic books they are they are but i'm known for providing a lot of narration in my comics uh you know everybody handles their time on a run a run of Wolverine, a run of Batman, a run of Aquaman, whatever, you know, they all handle their time on the series differently. Um, you want to do that. You want to not just be doing karaoke. You want to be like, okay, that would people to walk away and be like, that was, you know, that person's on the Mount Rushmore of Wolverine writers now. Um, I'm not saying that's necessarily me, but I'm trying my best to get there. Um, so like, look at Batman, like Scott Snyder, when he wrote Batman, had Gotham as like almost the main character. There's a lot about Gotham's history. There's a lot about Gotham's ethos. There's also a lot of narration and an internalization of Bruce's feelings and struggles. And if you look at Tom King's run on Batman later, he did something completely different. Even though it's Batman, right? We think we know Batman over however many decades is but you, you know, you can interpret him in so many different capacities. I mean, the Adam West Batman is a lot different than the Michael Keaton Batman. It's a lot different than the Christian Bale Batman, a lot different than the Ben Affleck Batman. In the same way, the, these different runs of comics are, uh, they stand alone. So Tom King, when he was writing Batman, no interiority, zero. Uh, his use of narrative captions, I'm not sure there were any. Uh, it was all dialogue. And the dialogue was very staccato and naturalistic. And it was meant to bring the characters down to earth. You know, one of my favorite comics that he did was about a date day where, you know, Bruce and, you know, Batman and Catwoman in their civilian clothes go on a date, a double date with uh, Clark and 
Lois, you know, was, and, and so they, they just go to, you know, and, and to this carnival and, and whatever else. And it's just like that whole, the whole comic, not just that issue, but like the whole comic run is like that, where it's like trying to uh, make the extraordinary ordinary. And there's a lot of lines that are sort of like, uh, they're not even full sentences, you know, like Batman and Catwoman will be like, bat, and he'll say cat. And she'll say bat with a question mark, and he'll say cat with a question mark. You know, they just go back and forth like that. It's all in an effort to make these people more relatable, which is the exact opposite of what like Snyder was doing. Scott Snyder was doing more like this really ravaged inner turmoil and very hyper poetic and literary narration. Anyways, what I'm doing is maybe a little bit more Snyder-esque when it comes to uh, Wolverine and that, you know, heavy narrative captions, internalization of Wolverine's experience along with all the carnage, all the hack and slash mayhem. Um, so I'm trying to make it as literary as possible. Um, now my novelistic tendencies have also made it really fun. I've written now over a hundred issues of Logan. You know, if you count X-Force and Wolverine and some of the events and crossovers I've done, I've written over a hundred issues. That's a lot of Logan. And uh, one of the things that's enabled that is me thinking long-term strategy from the very beginning. Whereas a lot of comics are very impatient. You know, they just like, okay, we've got a Wolverine story. Let's immediately have him fight Sabretooth. You know, I'm five years in now. And only now is Logan about to, it's just been announced. There's this event called Sabretooth War coming, right? Five years before he's even encountered his arch nemesis. Well, that's uh, some novelistic planning. Yeah. No, and it's just like I have a whole scroll of paper, you know, in the same way that I do with a novel, mapping out how I'm going to play with this comic series. Wow. Now, um, is there a chance that we might see some of these comets, comic, Comet Cycle books uh, show up in the movies or on the, the TV preferably. I mean, this seems like they're made the to whole, be a I mean, miniseries. We're in the middle of a writer's strike right now. Oh, uh, yes. But but I have been developing uh, the Ninth Metal with Sony. Um, and we're ready. We've I've got the pilot ready. I've got the pitch ready. And we're just waiting for the strike to be over. That sounds great. And, and are, have you started your next novel yet? I did. I did. It's on, on, I've got about a hundred pages of it done. Um, and I'm in the process of putting out feelers. So we'll see what happens. Fingers crossed. I've been speaking with Ben Percy. His latest novel completes the first trilogy of the comet cycle. It's called the sky vault. Thank you for joining me, Ben. Hey, thank you as always for having me on. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.